I could listen to Eileen talk all day, but now you get me. So Galatians chapter four, verses one through seven, and even as we're just hearing about caring for one another, bearing one another's burdens, I'll remind you that first Peter chapter five tells us that we can cast our anxieties on the Lord because he cares for us. So when we care for each other, really what we're doing is we're expressing the care of God. We're, we're being a tangible expression of that truth. And we need to be reminded of that, don't we? That God cares for us. In our text today, in Galatians, actually, we touched on the fatherly love of God last week um, as something when we come out from underneath the law and we come into Christ, we come into relationship with God as Father. And that's where our text guides us again today. So we get to really spend our entire time thinking about that. What does it mean that God is our heavenly Father and how do we relate to him as Father? And so as we turn to that today, here's been my prayer for you all week is just, Lord, would you give us, um, regardless of your experience of fatherhood, here on earth. My prayer for you has been, if it's been a great experience of fatherhood, that uh, you would be refreshed and renewed in an understanding of what it means to relate to God as father. I think often we relate to God as father according to what our experience of a father has been. And I don't know if that's been good or bad for you, absent or present, I, I don't know. But what I can tell you is that when the scriptures paint a picture of who God is as father, it is a rich and deep thing. And my hope is that today, uh, if you maybe begun to slip into experience of just saying, I kind of relate to God as distant or cold, uh, or I begin to relate to God as absent, uh, or maybe the idea of father is scary to me because of my experience that you would let the word of God in all its sufficiency speak to you about who God is as your father. So what I want to do is just walk us through the text that we're going to look at. All right, we're going to walk through these seven verses together. I'm going to read it and just try to walk you through it. And then I'm going to give you seven biblical themes beyond just this text, seven biblical themes that, of what it means to relate to God as Father so that we can begin to understand that. I, I find again and again when I talk to folks that are like, yes, I know God as Father, but I don't know what that means in terms of today that I'm supposed to relate to God. And so I want to give you seven ways you relate to God because he is our Father in the way the Scripture speaks about that. So let's look at chapter uh, four, verses one to seven, and I'm gonna do it a little different than I did at first service. I'm gonna read and then stop and comment as I go. Everybody okay with that? Kinda doesn't matter if you are or aren't. He says this in verse one, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Now, pause there. Here's what, uh, here's what Paul is saying to the Galatians. He's been talking about this idea of being under the guardianship of the law. And we learned last week that the law was this harsh taskmaster. That's what that word meant. He's actually using a different word for guardian here. It gets translated the same way. But it's a more neutral term. It's not a harsh taskmaster until we see who the taskmaster or who the guardian is in this passage. So here's what he's just said. He's painting the picture of before Christ came into the world, all those that God would eventually adopt and call his own were living like no different than slaves. And what he means is there's a huge difference between a child and a slave. But in this sense, there's no difference. Until a child receives the inheritance, until they have the inheritance, until they're the heir living in the inheritance that they have, they don't have it just like the slave doesn't have it. Neither of them have the inheritance the father will eventually give to the child. That's what he's saying when he says, you were no different than slaves. And then he goes on to say, you were slaves to the elementary principles of the world. And that term principles can also be translated spirits. And what Paul is saying there is 
before God sent Christ into the world, whom he would adopt you through Christ and through the work of Christ. Before that though, Galatians, you were living underneath the authority of the demonic. You were living under the authority of the devil. He had, in a very real way, ownership of you. You were living underneath that kind of slavery. That's what he's getting at. And he's talked about that. The penalty of not perfectly fulfilling the law is that we are separated from God. And that's essentially what he's saying again here. Similar theme to what we've seen thus far in Galatians. Now go to verse four with me, because he now turns it and he says, but in verse four, but when the fullness of time had come, just full stop there. Do you see what he's saying? Whatever he's about to say comes after this. It happened not a moment too soon and not a moment too late. In the fullness of time, when it had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So here's what he's just done. He said, you were enslaved to dark spiritual forces. You had not inherited what God intended for you to inherit. But then at just the right time, God sent Christ into the world, the revelation of the mystery of God and how he would redeem and how he would save. And what I want you to see is in one verse there, in verse four, he highlights both the divinity of Christ and the humanity of Christ. When he says God sent forth his son, that's a declaration that this is the divine son, the second person of the triune God. And that in his divinity, he then came, but he wasn't just fully divine, he was also fully human because he said, very next phrase, born of a what? Woman, born under the law. Those are both human realities. So he's saying, Christ, the son of God, was born at just the right time, not a moment too soon, not a moment too late, to execute the plan of God in all of history at just the right time, God sent his son. And in sending his son then, he had him be fully human born just like every human's born, born of a woman, born under the law. In other words, the requirements of the law were upon him as a human being, just like they're upon you and I. They must be kept perfectly. And here in this one phrase is a reminder that as divine, Jesus is able to perfectly keep the law. As human, he's able to, having kept that law perfectly, he's able to make payment for you and I because he's one of us. He is man, human, born of a woman born under the law, and because he kept it perfectly, he was able to make payment for you and I. It's a hugely pivotal text in understanding what it means, what happened to us. And then he says, in order to redeem those who are under the law, the idea of redeeming is, is purchasing back something. So Christ, through his work, purchased us for God. And in doing that, then, says, now all of this text leads towards this next sentence and what comes after. So everything up to that point, we've heard before something similar to it in Galatians, but now he's gonna take it a step further. After he says, born to redeem those who are under the law, what is the last phrase in verse five there? So look again with me. To redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive what? What's the word there? Adoption as sons. And this is what he's saying. He's saying this whole process was not just about redeeming you because he could redeem you and do what we've called justify you, make you legally right with God. He could do that and never adopt you. He could redeem you to be his servant. He could redeem you to be just someone that is somehow connected to him, but he didn't just redeem you for that purpose. 
all of that leads to this next phrase. He redeemed you in order to adopt you, in order to bring you into his household to make you his son or his daughter. And then he's just gonna spend the next two verses explaining that further. He says, and because you are sons, or we could say daughters, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So what I want you to see is this whole text builds towards those last two and a half verses. It's all meant to point towards this idea of adoption. Do you see that, yes? It's all pointing us right there. All the previous verses, before the fullness of time had come, this was our condition. Then Christ came. He was born a human. He was fully divine. He did this work to redeem us, and he redeemed us in order to adopt us. And so now what this text calls for is for us to reflect upon, okay, if he's adopted us and he is our father, how should we relate to him? So I wanna, I wanna help you see seven themes of how we as sons and daughters of God, if you are in Christ, he has purchased you for God, made you God's son, and I wanna show you how that means we're supposed to relate to God. And let me just ask this. Let me just say this. I need you to let the word of God speak. I don't have a magic pill to heal the, whatever damage was done in your life related to fatherhood. I don't have that. But what I do have is God's word, which is sufficient. And it speaks to us about who he is as a father. I just wanna invite you to let it speak. Just to say to the Lord, I am open to hear what you say about yourself as a father. I'm open to hearing that. I'm not shutting that down because of whatever I experienced. I'm gonna listen. And I wanna encourage you. There's healing to be found in that for whatever harm is in your background. There's a reawakening if you've taken a great father for granted. For those of us who are fathers, there is a call to live like our heavenly father, to be this kind of dad. There is healing to be found. And here's what, I, here's what I promise you, and I'll show you why in this text in just a moment. If you will commit yourself to understanding what it means for God to be father and to relate to him as such, you will find that over time, whatever needs to take place in your life for healing to come, will come. And there's a reason why. It's because the Spirit is testifying to you about the fatherhood of God. And he will bring that about. But it's hard work, yes? It can be hard work. So, we come to God's word to do that work. Now, let's talk about seven themes, okay? Here's number one. And we're gonna hit them each pretty quickly because as Eileen says, she stole a bunch of my time. <laughs> number one, how do we relate to God as our father? Theme number one in scripture is love. We relate to him in love. Now, none of this is gonna, I'm probably not gonna say anything of these seven themes you're gonna go, I would have never guessed, okay? But the first thing, and I think the primary thing it means to relate to God in love is this, is that we approach God convinced that he loves us and committed to returning that love to him. Convinced that he loves us. Now, let me help you with that. Because you're thinking, well, I, <laughs> trying, I just can't, I can't just say, convince myself that God loves me. I get that that's hard, but I wanna, I wanna help you in this way, okay? One, keep going back to the scriptures. Keep washing yourself in the water of the word. Let it testify to you, okay? But here's the thing. To, to be convinced that God loves you is not first and foremost an emotional experience. 
It's an objective reality. And because it's objective, it's, it's sitting there as real as the nose on your face. It's as real as the pen you're holding in your hand right now. It's as real as the chair you are sitting in. The love of God for you as his son or daughter is an objective reality. Now, let me help a little further with that. Because if it's objective and it's real, then it's there to be experienced. Would you agree with that? It doesn't ebb and flow based upon my emotional state. It doesn't ebb and flow based upon my experience. It is real. Now, when I say it's an objective reality, when we talk about God adopting us as his sons or daughters, 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. Behold what kind of love the Father has given to us. Some texts say lavished upon us that we should be called what? Sons of God or daughters of God. In other words, what he's saying is my adoption of you, this theological objective reality of my making you part of my family, of my adopting you, that is a grand and great expression of love. So it's there for you to understand and further access an understanding of God's love. That's what he's saying. They are tied together. I gave my son to bring it about. Now, we often talk about, theologians talk about the order of salvation. And so we think about terms and theological ideas like election, like regeneration, like calling. Uh, we think about justification, which we've talked about a lot. Right legal standing before God. We think about sanctification, which is being made more like Jesus day by day by day through the power of the Spirit. We talk about glorification as part of the order of salvation. These are all objective theological realities. Glorification is when Christ returns and we're made completely like him, right? We'll see him as he is and therefore become like him, John says. So those are fantastic. Do you know that one of those objective theological realities in the order of salvation that theologians have talked about for 2,000 years is adoption. Everyone who has been justified, made legally right with God, has also been adopted. The two are synonymous with one another. In other words, there's no one that God says, I'm gonna justify you, but not adopt you. If you have been justified, you have been adopted. Every single person. Because God doesn't just aim to create a group of servants. He aims to create a group of sons and a group of daughters. God did not need to adopt us, but he has by his free choice. And it's one of the greatest and grandest expressions of his love for us. That's the first. We relate to him convinced of his love. Now let me ask, how do you relate to someone when you're absolutely sure they love you? Like when you know that you know that you know and you have no doubt about it, have you had someone who's loved you that way? I hope you have. It's a spouse, maybe it's a friend. You're not tentative with that person, are you? You're not cautious. You don't walk on eggshells. You don't, you don't walk around going, ah, yeah, if I do this, yeah. you, just, you just are so certain and you walk with comfort and you're willing to be vulnerable. And there is a, there's a, they're gonna understand. Does that mark the way you relate to God? Just ask that question. Does that mark the way you relate to God? Are you certain of his love for you? His fatherhood is meant to help you understand that. The second way, the second theme around fatherhood and the way we relate to God is familiarity. Now this one you might not have expected me to say. Familiarity. That we relate to God with a sense of familiar affection 
is part of what it means to relate to God as Father. Now, let me show you where I get this from. In the text we just read, Galatians 4, 6, here's the words that we heard. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Now, that word Abba is an Aramaic word, and it's a term of close affection and familiarity. That's what that word is. It is, you might almost think about like a nickname, it's God saying, you can call me this close, affectionate name. No one who's not mine can call me that, but you can call me this. Right, so uh, my kids are Kinley, Emerson, and Deacon. And my wife and I are the only people in the world who call them K-Bear, Emmy Pie, and D-Man. Right, you should not walk up to my daughter and call her K-Bear. She will be weirded out. But I call her that, and they are the only three people in the world who call me dad. No one else. They're the only ones. If you call me dad, also weird. <laughs> but not them. And they address me with a sense of familiarity, don't they? They don't come to me with hesitancy or like, ooh, I don't know if I can come to dad. They just come and they're like, dad, dad. I mean, how many, dad, 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 dad. Okay, yes, I hear you. That's what God means when he says the spirit. Now here's what I want you to get. Because there's a subtle difference between this and the Romans 8 text that I'm going to give you, which says almost the exact same thing. It says the spirit of the son is crying out, and crying out's intentional, not just saying, crying out, almost as if he knew we would need this sort of emphatic voice in our spirit saying to us, you may speak to God this way. The spirit is in you, if you're in Christ. The spirit is in you saying you can call God Abba. You can call him dad. You can come to him with this kind of familiarity. I want you to think about the miracle that this is through the cross of Christ. Because under the old covenant, before the new covenant came and Jesus shed his blood so that we could be reconciled to God, under the old covenant, the Hebrews would not write or say the personal name of God. His name is Yahweh. That's how he revealed himself. And in English, the transliteration of that uh, would be Y-A-H W-E, no, W-Y-E-H. But in the scriptures, when you read them, they take out all the vowels. They only write the consonants. So Y-H-W-H are in Hebrew, yet, het, yod, het, vav, het. It's what's called the tetragram. They would not even write the name of God, the personal name of God. They would not speak it. When they came to Yahweh in the text, those four letters, they would say Adonai, which means Lord, because they would not take the holy, pure name of God upon their lips under the old covenant. He was too holy, could not be approached in this way. And now under the new covenant, because the righteousness of Christ has been given to all who are in God, we find Paul saying, you can come to God and not only can you say his name, you can call him dad. You can call him Abba. That's the miracle of the cross of Jesus. Do you see it? Yes? It's brilliant. It's beautiful. Come to me with familiarity. Now listen to Romans chapter 8. Almost the same words, but one slight difference. See if you notice what the difference is. Romans eight fifteen. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Same thing. What was the difference? Anybody catch it? Who's doing the crying in that verse? In Galatians 4, it's the Spirit saying to you, 
Trent, you may call me Abba. And then Romans 8 says, having heard that testimony, we cry Abba. We say Dad. We come to him with that kind of familiarity. Friends, if you're not approaching God with a sense of familiarity that a father wants a son and a daughter to have with him, you are not approaching him as father. If you're approaching him as cold or distant or infrequently, that is not what the scriptures say about what it means to relate to God as father. To relate to God as father is to approach him like you are familiar friends. He welcomes it. And the blood of Christ has made it possible. Do not say to yourself, I'm honoring God by treating him as distant and other. No, that is not the message of the new covenant and the gospel of Jesus. It is you have been brought near to God through Christ and you may speak to him as your Abba. I hope that says, I hope that ministers to you. Number three theme about the way we relate to God as father. And again, this is all, are you relating to God this way? Is trust, trust. We relate to God as our father when we trust him. Now, fathers are supposed to be trustworthy. And I'm very sorry if you had a father who wasn't. But God aims to show you that he is. He is your trustworthy father. Matthew 6, 31 and 32 say, therefore do not be anxious, saying what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things and your heavenly father, your heavenly what? Father knows that you need them. Now here, he's talking about trusting God to provide, but broaden that a little bit because we could go all sorts of places in scripture where as a father, he doesn't just provide our needs like food, shelter, clothing. He says he provides by leading us. He provides by guiding us. He provides by protecting us. So there's this provision that we lean upon him for. And let me just say that to trust God is to do two things. It's to trust, is to trust that we can follow the leading of his spirit and he will catch us in places, he'll take care of us in places where going out by faith puts us possibly in danger, even risking things. But also to trust him is to see that his, is to say, I will follow what you've said is life-giving. I will follow your commands. That's part of trusting God. To say I'm gonna live the way I think is best is to deny that God's commands are life-giving and trustworthy, that he has declared to you what is right and good for you. So that's what we're talking about when we talk about trust. I think about this as a father, and I think this is a dad thing. If you're a dad, did you love when your kids were little, and maybe they are, just chucking them as high as you can in the air? It's really no one? This is like my favorite thing as a dad, and here's why. Because I love the look on their, one, they giggle and they laugh. There's no harder belly laugh than when I chuck them, and it's always a good foot or two higher than mom is comfortable with, right? Which is why I say it's a dad thing, right? Dads chuck their kids in the air, and they get the big giggles, and mom is like, and you're like, it's good. I'm teaching them trust. This is biblical what's happening here. So you, you throw them, and the look on their face is just sheer joy because why? Dad's gonna catch me. I trust dad, dad's got me, right? That's why it's fun as a dad, by the way. It's not just fun because we like to come real close to injuring our kids. It's fun because we see the joy in their face when they trust us as their father. When they know dad's got me, I'm good. And so I can go higher and higher and higher 
You know what else, dads? Our kids get older and we can't chuck them anymore. And that's a good reminder that they need a father bigger and stronger than us. So all my teaching them to trust better not be just teaching them to trust me. It better be teaching them to trust the God who is strong enough to always catch them in any circumstance because my strength has limits. That's what we're aiming to do. We relate to God as Father when we trust him. Fourth theme, generosity. We relate to God as Father when we believe that he's generous and wants to be generous. When, and here's what that looks like. When we believe, here's what believing the generosity of God as a Father is. When we believe that he wants us to have everything that's good for us. God wants us to have everything that is good for us and we ask him for them. That's what it means to relate to God. When's the last time you asked God to be generous with you? Do you know that your heavenly father, that's what it is to be a father. You, heavenly, fathers want to pour out blessings upon their kids. We have this conversation in our house you know, regularly when our kids have done something wrong. We say, look, you need to understand that your dad's first heart is not to punish. Your dad's first heart, that my greater desire, I punish when I need to. I want to give you gifts in abundance. That's what I want to do. It's my instinct to do that. It's my, the fulfillment of my joy to pour out good things upon you. At times, I won't need to discipline because you make a poor choice. That's not what I want to do. That's what I do because it's right. What I want to do is give you every good gift I could possibly imagine giving you. And when my kids believe that, do you see that it changes the way they relate to me? They don't walk around me going, dad's just looking for an opportunity to punish. He's just waiting for an opportunity to come down hard on me. That's what dad is. Oh, that's dad's favorite moment. That's my least favorite moment. I don't love punishing. I don't love disciplining. I want, I want to give good gifts. That's what God is saying to us. Listen to these texts. I got three for you here because it's so rich. Matthew 7, verse 11. If you then who are evil, human beings, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good gifts to those who ask him? We can ask our Father for good gifts. Not just our needs, by the way. We can ask him to be exceedingly generous, and he is. Ephesians 1, three to five. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Not some, not a few, not just enough. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for what, church? Adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. And then I've said this before, but I think maybe the richest promise in all of scripture, Romans chapter eight, verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously, graciously give us all things? That's a, do you see how big that promise is? What God is saying there is I love to be generous with you. So much so that I gave you the thing that was hardest for me to give, and that is my own son. He laid down his life for you. I sent him. He went willingly and joyfully to accomplish redemption. 
What would be harder for me to give than that? So why would you think I wouldn't be generous with you? Why would you relate to me as if I'm a begrudging gift giver? I've given you the hardest thing that there is to give and having given that for you, you never need doubt that I will give you everything that I deem good for you to have. If it's good for you, I will give it. I will delight to give it. He's generous. Do you relate to God as generous? I find far too often I think, eh, I mean, there's probably a limit on this. And God is saying, no, no, I gave you my son. Why would you doubt my generosity? Number five theme, obedience. I'm just gonna cover these last three here. We're gonna move a little quicker because the first four, I think, are, are, they require a lot more depth. But these last couple, obedience. We relate to God as our father when we love to obey his commands and follow the leading of his spirit. Romans 8, 14, and 15 say this. For all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. In other words, what he's saying is, this is what a father does for a son, for a daughter. He, he leads them. And it's by the spirit that he leads us. There's no one that would call him father whom he will not lead, whom he will not give guidance to. So this great news is like, how many times have you been in a situation where you're like, I have no idea what to do? And he's saying, I'll lead you. The spirit is there and I'll lead you through the spirit. Pay attention, listen, expect me to lead you. I mean, how often have we made decisions and never actually consulted God? <laughs> never asked, never sought him, never thought he'll lead me and just tried to chart our own way and he's saying, well, that, I'm your father. I'm here for this. I'm here to give you guidance. Come. First John chapter five, verse three through four say this, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God, it's a son or daughter, overcomes the world. And what John is saying there is that to relate to God as father, to be born of God, is to not find his commands burdensome but to follow them because we recognize that he's so good. He's not giving commands to us just to be burdensome, just to hem us in. He's doing that out of love. All right, number six, a somewhat obvious theme when it comes to fatherhood and it's discipline. The number six theme that we see in scripture about how we relate to God as fathers is that he relates to us as in discipline at points. Now here's what, it mean, here's what that means. It means to relate to God as father, we accept his discipline willingly when it's needed. Now, we already said this is not God's first heart as father, but it is something God does. Rome, uh, Hebrews 12, five through seven says, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves. Discipline is an enactment of the love of God. Disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. So his discipline is not made to push us further away, which is sometimes what we experience growing up. Discipline is pushing away. This is discipline to be brought near. He disciplines the child he what? Receives. So it's discipline that draws closer. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline. Good fathers discipline their kids because they need to be corrected, because they need to be kept out of jeopardy and, and consequences that their decisions might lead to. So good fathers discipline their kids. But God disciplines us in order to draw us into himself and further down the road of life and joy and fullness and fulfillment. So our job as his children is to receive that discipline when it comes. Now, God is not a disciplinarian who says, now you should know what you did. 
That's not how God disciplines. He does not, if you're wondering like, well, did this bad thing happen in my life because God was disciplining me? God does not leave you to wonder. When you've walked in sin and you know it and you receive, you receive correction from the Lord, there are circumstances God brings into our life that are difficult circumstances at times because of sin patterns in our life to correct those. That's a clear pattern in scripture. And where that happens though, here's what you can know. God is not passive aggressive about his discipline. He does not sit back and go, well, you figure it out. He will always reveal our sin to us, make it clear the pathway of repentance to us so that we might walk in it, and he will remove his disciplinary hand when we walk in heartfelt repentance, confession and repentance. He is not looking to keep his hand of discipline on us just so that he can keep disciplining us. Do you understand this? Deeply important. He disciplines us because he loves us not because he is antagonistic towards us. I like what Millard Erickson, a theologian, said about this. He said, uh, fatherhood in God will always involve discipline because God is our heavenly father, not our heavenly grandfather. <laughs> and I like that. Because Amanda and I talk all the time. We've said to our parents, like, yes, you can correct our children. If you see something needing to be corrected, feel, you know, yes, of course you can correct them. But we also want to free them to not need to correct our children because we want them to be grandma and grandpa. We want the kids to not think I'm going over for discipline. We want them to like fill them with sugary snacks and give them the ice cream and spoil them. And then we'll detox them when they come back. All right. We will undo all the damage after the fact. Grandparents aren't the disciplinarians. They're not meant to be. Fathers are the disciplinarians. Mothers come alongside. We, we discipline our children and we let grandparents be free from that. And the grandparents all said amen, right? Yeah, I don't want to be the disciplinarian. I want to be the one that they are like, I can't wait to get to grandma's house because the sugary cereal is going to come out. Right? Now, grandparents, please don't say Pastor Trent gave me permission to do whatever I want with my grandchildren. Don't say that to your kids. But you get the point, right? I like what Erickson says there. God is our heavenly father. So he disciplines us. Last theme that we see here, and there's others, but these are the seven that I think stand up most consistently in scripture, is thankfulness. If you're gonna relate to God as father, it means constantly giving thanks to him. We thank our father because he is generous, because he leads us, because he protects us, because he's a good father. Ephesians 5, 19 and 20 says that the body is singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. He's talking to the church. saying, sing and make melody to the Lord in your heart, with your heart. Then he says, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So when we come to him as Father, we come with thanksgiving. Is that a regular pattern in your life? As you talk to the Lord, do you give thanks to him? You find yourself overflowing with thanks. That's part of what it means to relate to him as your father. And look, this isn't natural. How many times, if you have children, how many times have you had to tell them to say thank you to someone? Say thank you, say thank you, say thank you, say thank you. I mean, it's like a never ending task to teach our kids to, to say thank you, say thank you, say thank you. It's because it's not natural to us to do that. Would you please take that into your relationship with the Lord and recognize that you're probably not giving thanks the way that you should? and say, Holy Spirit, would you instruct my heart the way I instruct my children to give thanks? Would you instruct my heart to give thanks? Because part of what it means to relate to God as Father. Now, in all this church family, those are seven themes 
This whole passage points us towards the fact that we have been adopted, this grand theological reality. It's an objective reality. And in that, I wanna give you the gift of beginning to relate to God as Father, not the way your experience tells you to relate to a Father, but the way the Word of God tells you to relate to a Father. And because the Spirit is in you, crying out, Abba, Father, and teaching you how to come to God as a Father, if you will stay the course in that, the healing, the wholeness, the joy of having this father, it will come. I know it's hard. It may take diligent work. Stay with it. The, the light of the joy of your heavenly father will break upon you. Let's pray. So father, we thank you that you are our father through Jesus Christ, that he has purchased us and redeemed us and not just redeemed us so that we would be justified and your servants redeemed us so that we would be your kids. So help us to come to you in all the ways your word tells us to come to you. We're not relying on our own opinions here about what it means to relate to you as a father. We look to your word and we thank you that in your generosity, you've given us that word and told us that we can be fully convinced of your love. We can expect your generosity. We can come to you and give thanks. We can trust that your discipline is never harsh, but always just right. And we can receive it. So help us to relate to you as our heavenly father. And now we sing to you. It's a way of giving thanks to you, Lord. We wanna give that thanks to you, our heavenly father. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's stand together and close our time with a song.